the Smorgasbord. I'm Tom Shapira, and with me as always... Hello, I'm Sean Edry. When my men reported a crazy black man in the Fantastic Force craft, I knew it had to be you. Well, no, it's not me. That's Luke Cage. Where's my money, honey? And with us today, a unique guest. We have Julian Darius on the phone. Hi, everyone. It's an honor to be here. Well, it's an honor to host you. Julian is, of course, the co-founder of Sequel.org, who hosted this show for three years now. And it's the first time he's joined us. It's one of those rare occasions where we have a guest. And Sean, do you want to tell them why do we have a guest today? What's the special occasion? Absolutely. So as our listeners know, the podcast has been winding down for the last couple of months. As we are on our own personal doomsday clock, we decided to do a special episode about lists, because we love lists. In this particular case, we're going to do the top five comics of all time, in our humble opinions. And I figured, if we have to have someone on the show to talk about the top five anything, it's got to be Julian Darius. So here he is. Well, I'm just honored to be on. I mean, you guys have done such awesome work, and I love listening to Smorgasbord, you know, loading it up onto my uh, my cell phone and playing it while I go jogging. So since you are the guest, Julian, I think you get to be first, and there is no formalities. It's not rated. It's not some end of the timeline, as, at least as far as I'm concerned. This is just what I'm feeling are the top five comics right now, and next week it might be. I feel the same way. I mean, my major problem was making sure that my list wasn't entirely pornography. <laughs> so I have to go with uh, Miracle Man for uh, my first choice. I kind of feel guilty about uh, putting a superhero title there in, in number one, but boy, that is the superhero title I come back to more than any other. This gets me, you know, Alan Moore and Neil Gaiman on the list, but boy, do I come back to it. You know, a classic of 1980s revisionism. I think it is obviously a lot more scattered, a lot more inconsistent than something like Watchmen, but I, I think its highs are better than Watchmen. I think it, it goes somewhere and has something to say not only about superheroes and our longing for a utopian state or for a fascist, you know, leader like Donald Trump with superpowers to, to take over, but also to the human condition and our longing for perfection and things like this. So the Gaiman stuff has some of the most beautiful poetry in comics. I remember the first time I ever read it. First of all, it was amazing to me that this was a series that began with Alan Moore and continued with Neil Gaiman, who at the time were, I mean, we're talking Watchmen and Sandman, right? Like these were two of the highest ranked and most appreciated writers in comics working together on the same property, which blew my mind before I even read the books. And then, of course, Marvel recently reissued it and in typical Marvel fashion screwed it up. But I have to agree with you that, like, when I think about it, it's even more impressive than Watchmen because in Miracle Man, Moore actually does change the world, right? Watchmen ends at the point where it's like, okay, now things are going to be different, but you never actually see it. Whereas Moore's last arc and the way that Gaiman picked up on that in the Golden Age was just look at how this world effectively has been transformed. And not a lot of books have done that even since then. I really like your notion, Julian, that really it's a work that of highs and lows. And yeah, it's not as consistent as Watchmen, certainly in terms of the art department. 
which, you know, it has its ups and downs, and the original coloring is classic, is the nice word to say it. It gave Chuck Austin work, so that's already like Actually, a... Actually, some of his best work, but the highest points are ridiculously high. Uh, the issue number nine is the one with the birth? Yeah, and I think it's those high points that I keep coming back to. I, I do kind of agree, every time you run a superhero story forward, eventually the world is going to change in radical ways. Um, I mean, at this point, we're like six years into the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, it's totally unrecognizable and in the ways that it is recognizable just are bullshit. They, they make no sense. I mean, the presence of an alien invasion in New York, I mean, all of human history just took a radical left turn, uh, and it's not acknowledged. So I, I think more than anything, um, Miracle Man accomplishes that. We were talking last episode about like how we got into comics and when I was doing my Moore binge, you know, so there were those three books, right? You start with Watchmen, then you go to V for Vendetta, and then there's Miracle Man. And the thing that I'm realizing just now talking to you is, you know, V for Vendetta in a very similar way ends before you see the ultimate effects of these transformative events. These are just things that, you know, they're momentous and they're huge and they're epic, but Moore was never really into going through the aftermath except with Miracle Man, where you really have that whole third book is just an examination of, you know, money doesn't matter anymore. And uh, marriage is being, you know, all of a sudden he's running off with the uh, Miracle Woman and uh, London is completely destroyed. And it leaves this scar that is there for the whole uh, only six issues of Gaiman's run until someday he'll go and finish it. Is it him or Buckingham who's holding it up? Who should I be blaming here? <laughs> you can blame Marvel. I think it's okay. You can always blame Marvel. Yeah, when in doubt, blame Marvel. Uh, I mean, I, I I would say that, uh, you know, what's surprising is it's it's really only that last issue of Moore's run that that you're talking about that really gets at what happens next and, and money doesn't matter anymore. And people kind of... Uh, Remember the more stuff more than the Gaiman stuff, but you know, it's really the Gaiman stuff that explores sort of the world after. How do you take that denouement and turn it into a whole series? And you know, sometimes that's been tried, like they're doing that now with fables, with the sort of post, uh, fables being revealed to the world thing. And you know, it's interesting, but it doesn't compare to what Neil Gaiman was able to do. I think the way that he picked it up was just, it was a flawless, transition because Moore really did end it at a point where another writer could come in and thank God it was him. Like we could have had Ray Fox's golden age and that would have been a nightmare or I don't know, it could have been Jim Lee's uh, the golden age and then everybody would have really weird clothes. Unless... Jim Lee's before Miracle Man. Give it two years and we'll get uh, Jeff John's continuation. Well, hopefully not. Like the thing that I hold on to as weird as it sounds is the fact that Miracle Man is so relatively unknown in like the Moore canon the fact that it had been out of print for so long because of the, all these rights messes and nonsense and all of that and then Marvel picked it up and started putting out the Mick Anglo stuff that nobody wanted to read and by the time they finally reissued high quality Miracle Man you know series and it was available online and it, they were putting it back on the shelves. And no, you know, again, it was, I think by that point, Moore's reputation might have already been like, yeah, okay, snake worshiper, whatever. We don't have time for that. What's he going to do? Have Pocahontas sleep with the, you know, like after Lost Girls and all of that, people sort of soured on him. And that's a real shame. Excellent 
pick for this list because if there is one title in like the the works of Alan Moore that needs more attention these days, it's that one. Okay, uh, Sean, you're up for the bet. So I decided to spin things around a little bit, as I do, and I decided that my top five list would be web comics rather than print comics. Shake things up a little bit, have a little bit of variety. And my first pick is Order of the Stick by Rich Burlew. This is not going to come as a surprise to anyone who's ever heard me gush about webcomics for 800 years, but it is remarkable to me that we're talking about a series that has been running for years and years and years using, so it seems, simplistic artwork, right? We're talking stick figures here. That's the whole joke, Order of the Stick. And yet I have to give Burlew so much credit for telling this incredible story that granted, you know, in the tradition of most epic fantasy probably should have ended a year or two ago, about a couple of arcs back, and we're sort of still dragging it on to the final confrontation. But he has managed to consistently for over a thousand strips give you these amazing cliffhangers and these character turns. Just this week, like the most recent strip, reintroduces a character that's been gone since the end of the first arc. It's like out of the blue. And he really has a solid sense of, on the one hand, creating this world that ultimately, I mean, if you look at the first arc, there's no question, this was designed as a Dungeons and Dragons parody. They were making open fourth wall breaking jokes about the rules and, you know, mind flayers got dragged away by lawyers because of copyright infringement. It was a whole thing. But at some point, it sort of transitioned into its own original work. And it's telling this epic fantasy story full of twists and turns with amazing characters. And as funny as it sounds, even the, you know, the, the stick figure artwork manages to still be so expressive and the colors manage to pop so much. Um, just a masterful work. And it's online and it's free. So, hey. Yeah, it's free mostly because they can't keep the damn books in print. It's a series that I really, really loved for a long while, but the pacing kills it. And Rich Burley, he had a lot of like physical problems. Like he was sick, I know, for quite a while. And he couldn't keep up the pacing even with his art style. I kind of wanted to be over and then just to binge the whole thing from the beginning, which which is about a good two weeks of reading. Uh, but it is, like you said, it's amazing how something that starts is just a one-note gag of, oh, you know, here's D&D, becomes this really human story, and all the characters that are one-note at the beginning suddenly get a whole lot of depth. And the way the art, like you said, it's, in first glance, it's like, oh, it's, it's super simple, but when you see what he does with those figures, it's the webcomic version of something like Copra, which is at first glance, oh, what's this simple thing that just apes old DC comics and then oh no 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 it's actually a whole lot better than the things that it aping it's it <laughs> so much more depth to them and the art is amazing Julian have you read Order of the Stick? I have I can't get into it I'm thrown by the art and you know I mean I haven't been able to progress far enough into it to get into all of the depth that you're talking about but I, I love what you're saying I love how much you love it well, since Julian picked uh, an ongoing series, which is technically still ongoing, and Shaw did a long-running webcomic, I'm going to start my list with a short, with a seven-pager. And it's a short strip from uh, otherwise a very long-running series uh, by Mr. John Wagner. 
and Mr. Ellen Grant. And the art is by one John Higgins, more famously known as the colorist of uh, Killing Joke and Watchmen. And I'm talking about Judge Dredd, specifically Prague 480, Letter from a Democrat. Sean, do you know that one? I don't, but I'm already starting to cringe. Uh, yeah. I know this. Uh, Julian, yeah. Are, this is good. Yeah. After a long, long run in which Dredd was becoming more and more of the heroic figure and not the nice guy, but the good guy who saves the city from monsters and demons and criminals and whatever. Suddenly, after, I think the previous trip was something with like a ghost ship, like a ghost pirate ship or something equally stupid. Prog 480 is a whole seven pages of a letter written from a pro-democracy anti-judge group uh, mother. And she writes to her husband and two sons while on TV, she and her comrades kidnap a TV stations and... The father watches Dredd just burst into the studio and gunning her down as the letter like is in the background as he reads it. And it ends with Dredd just coming to the door because, well, the husband is suspect and the children is suspect and looking down at them and telling them democracy is not for the people. It's a gut punch and then a gut kick and then a curb stump to the soul. It's something that's been in my mind quite recently because we, we're in the age of, you know, the anti-hero protagonist where all your TV show, your Breaking Bad and your Sopranos and Mad Men's and The Wires are all about, you know, guys who are bad guys, but they do what they must do. But must they do that? And they all tend to be written as a warning to the reader, uh, to the viewer, as it were. Of, oh, you shouldn't be that guy from Breaking Bad. He's a bad man. It's in the name of the show. But eventually, pretty much every single viewer is like, oh, yeah, I really like him. He's the coolest dude around, right? Everybody wants to be Heisenberg. That's the name. And Judge Red solved that problem. It's the one story where you can watch a guy who's the super cool, baddest, does the job right, no matter the cost guy, and admire him while knowing for absolute certainty he's the villain. He's a monster. And you know it because... This strip like cemented that fact forever and ever. No matter what he does, he'll always be this guy coming into the home of two children whose mother is just killed and glowering at them and telling them, behave, we are watching you. Democracy is not for you. Tom, you're brilliant. That's a brilliant effing choice. I'm dead serious. And it really gets at, you were talking about the anti-hero, but it really gets at so much of my revulsion of uh what action movies and superhero comics have kind of turned into i feel as if half of the plots don't even make sense because the point is you know to make something seem more badass and tough and when you think about all of them you realize you know iron man of the movies is a, is a terrible human being and it's true that in the in the history of judge dread i mean that that fascistic tendency was always there but this is the strip that sort of makes subtext text and you know in the history of macho action heroes uh you you may well be really onto something to to isolate this short story as a key moment it's amazing to me that in the face of popularity 2018 never really caved into the pressure of making dread a quote unquote better person like this guy has been in pop culture for what, 40 years now? 40 years. 
and they have never made him, like Tom said, sort of the, the Punisher analog, right? The protagonist who's like very tortured and delivers justice, but he means well or whatever. They always manage to pull back from that edge of making him just a cartoon character. It's really, it's John Wagner. Other writers try to a lesser or greater degree, but John Wagner for 40 years now coming on and off from that character and always making sure that you know what's what. And really, John Higgins' art in it is so, like, it's melodramatic, but it's, like, so powerful and, like, straight to the point and spares nothing. And this is a comic that at that point was still considered for children. And, and it ends with, like, a close-up of, you know, the mother's hand as bullet-ridden, uh, bleeding on the floor and, and her last words to her husband. And poor John Higgins, because his work is consistently overwritten because they had those awful recolorings of the killing joke recently and i know it's brian Bolland's favorite prefers his own colors but i really like the old one and then they i think they recolored watchmen for the absolute edition or something and then they did watchmen war which is like let's erase john higgins contribution to the story permanently and <laughs> poor guy he's so good he's so good and everybody's like nah yeah we can do without him so I'm I'm dedicating this choice to John Higgins. Didn't he illustrate like Worlds Without End with uh, Delano? He was a penciler for quite a long while before he became more known as a colorist. And I think he still pencils every once in a while. But I don't know about that thing you said. I should check it out <laughs> just because you said it. But I I, I don't. Worlds, yeah, he did do that six issue miniseries for DC in uh, 1990. And that's Jamie Delano writing. Yep. Mm. Who's awesome. Okay, uh, Julian, you're up again. Okay, uh, I'm choosing a French comic uh, or a French series, The Obscure Cities, Le Cité Obscure. This is by uh, Peters and Chuitin. Um, Chuitin's work is just intensely beautiful. This is a series that occurs on a sort of counter-Earth in which, of course, everyone speaks French as, you know, one should on a proper Earth. And, uh, <laughs> it's filled with, uh, you know, different cities. Each album kind of has a, a mystery to it, uh, focuses on a different city. You see different cultures. Some are kind of more fascistic than others. Um, and as a series, it, uh, it goes to crazy places. Um, you know, one of the seminal moments in, in the series is when you get a, uh, pamphlet produced by, uh, an inventor and it's uh his guide to uh machines of transportation uh present and to come and you get a uh a, a book that's kind of a short book that's a scholarly book that's commenting on the events of a previous book and uh it's got notes in the margins it's not entirely clear who these notes are by and, uh, there's, it's even gone into multimedia and, and DVD stuff. And, um, it, at the end of the day, it, it has that kind of meta stuff, but it's just intensely beautiful and very French. Um, not going, there's, I don't think there's, if there's one fight scene in the whole thing, you know, uh, there's one, but, uh, that's about it. Uh, you know, it's about, uh, about these different cultures and about, uh, you know, oddities and, and how they affect a, a people, not just a specific character. So I adore it. Yeah, I remember uh, IDW just started reissuing them because I think they started doing them in English 
in the 90s and then they stopped. I think it was like Fantagraphics or Ed House or someone. But now IDW committed to doing them in English from the beginning. So well, have to check it out, I guess. Is there no license that's safe from IDW's predating hands? Those are good hands. They are nice people. They are. I'm bad-mouthing them for nothing. When it comes to issuing like classic European stuff, at least. They're not so bad with the other licenses either. That's fair. Are you saying you're going to buy the complete ongoing Stretch Armstrong in the Flex Fighter series that's coming out right now? I did not say that, but... No, 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 no. You must now. It's a license from IDW. Now you have to buy it. Hey, I have not gone anywhere near any other IDW licenses since they wrapped up Gem because do I have time to get into Transformers all day? Hell no. As a gesture to Tom, I tried reading... um, More Than Meets the Eye. Yeah, that one. And to sort of prepare myself for it, I went to the Transformers wiki. That was a bad idea. (laughs) I can't read multiversal parallel theory like that. I'm not Grant Morrison. I don't understand how this shit works. But... um, I'll tell you what does work, though. There's a webcomic called Kid Rad. This is by a guy named Dan Miller. Plot-wise, my description is going to sound a little bit like what I was talking about before with Order of the Stick in that it is visually meant to mimic uh, 16-bit video games. So there are all the characters are rendered as these sprites with very blocky pixels and so on. But there are two things in my mind that separate this from a lot of video game commentary and video game-based webcomics. And believe me, that's like 90% of webcomics out there. It's a big thing. The thing that distinguishes Kid Rat is, first of all, it's one of the very few webcomics I've found that really take advantage of the platform that it's actually using, as opposed to this could just be in a book. Because Dan Miller uses a lot of animated GIF work within the panels. So sometimes the character will be saying something and then you click on the next button and he's running down a highway to demonstrate, you know, what's going on in this scene. Uh, He integrates music at a key point in the story. He has all of these different technologies. And this was all browser-based. Like, to this day, I think, in spite of... Microsoft Internet Explorer, nobody really uses it unless they're sadists, but uh, Chrome, Firefox, for a while, they weren't really compatible. And then someone just went and sort of readapted it for modern tech. So it still holds up. Everything still seems to work. And the story itself is much deeper than it appeared to be because you start off with this idea that uh, Rad is a character in a video game that's named after him. It's a 90s video game, so obviously he goes around on a flying skateboard uh, and his hair is permanently gelled into spikes. And then what happens is that he gets better and better at the game. Well, rather the player gets better and better and at controlling him and making it to the end. He beats the game several times. And then one day, the player doesn't come back. And Rad is just standing there in this empty world, waiting for things to start, and nothing happens. Until a character from a different video game breaks into his world, pulls him out of it. It's the starting point of this huge cosmic adventure about trying to find meaning in uh, lives that have been pre-programmed and what does it mean to be a character from a video game that's based on violence? Can you ever really do anything but that when your entire skill set is kill the enemy in front of you? 
It sounds to me like somebody should sue Disney's Wreck-It Ralph. <laughs> because you're, you're describing the plot and, oh, there's someone from another game, okay. And they pull him out of the game, okay. And then he ponders the life of a pre-programmed guy who's destined to do only one action. It's Wreck-It Ralph. He should, they should sue Wreck-It Ralph now before the second one comes out. It's Wreck-It Ralph minus Sarah Silverman, which can only be to its advantage, I think. Oh, don't trash Sarah Silverman. I'm not fond of her. We're going to have a fight here. I like her in that movie and not in much else. But anyway, so you could trip and fall over a dozen video game web comics just like by pushing the enter key on your keyboard, you're going to find the video game web comic. That one, I think, distinguishes itself in a whole bunch of ways. I remember trying it and not getting into it. And I think part of it is what you said Uh, that they're doing elements that can be reproduced in prints. And at a certain point for me, it's as a, like, you know, classicist, elitist, whatever. Is it really a comic or is this just like something else? I'm not sure. Either that or it's my anti-Marvel motion comic things, which were an, abom an abomination unto God. The thing with motion comics is it's all a joke, right? It's just panels that they move around, you know, to do stuff. That's nonsense. This is more like... You will be flipping through these pages and then you will turn to a page that is moving. And then the next page might be static. But for the page that's moving, it's significant that he's moving. It's not that every page was animated. It's that the ones that mattered were animated. Everything else was just panels on a page. Yeah, I have some of the same kind of purist, like, is this a comic uh, kind of response to that. But that doesn't mean it's not good. I understand that perspective. My argument has always been, if it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck, but it's on a screen instead of a book, it might still be a duck anyway. It might like, be Howard the Duck. It might be Howard the Duck, and, you know, he has feathers, as Leah Thompson discovered that one time. And if it moves, it might be a motion picture. Wouldn't that require, well... No, but it doesn't move consistently is the thing. Okay, so what we're going to do is now we're going to stop the podcast. We're going to pull out Scott McCloud from his home. <laughs> we're going to bring in, I think, uh, what's his name? Thierry Gronstein. <laughs> do you have him like in a Pokeball in your mantle? <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll let him duke it out. Like, what's a comic? Find the proper definition. I think to enjoy it, I just sort of set that aside and say, you know, I can sit and read through it. It's also like it's it looks more intimidating than it is because... The list will say it's like a thousand pages long, but each page is like one panel. So it's really not that long a read. I just sat down and read it in like one run. And it was once you get past the sort of stumbling block of trying to figure out what this thing is and you tap into what the content is trying to do, I think that sort of ends up paying dividends on its own. Okay. You know, uh... I'll, I'll let the, the scholars decide like what is it. It's well written. Ontological fight. <laughs> uh, my choice is a comic. It's a plain old ongoing series that ran between uh, 1996 and 2001. And it's probably the thing I've reread the most uh, in all my history of comic written. And it's Hitman, written by uh, Garth Ennis and John McRae. And everybody who's an Ennis fan has his favorite Ennis, and it's usually Preacher. Or more recently, his Punisher stuff. But for me, it's always going to be Hitman. Uh, and it's going to be a strange day if Hitman is not in my top whatever number of comics list. And if it's ever that day, I'm probably like the thing or a pod person and you should shoot me. And it's 
It's 60 odd issues plus some special and it's the ongoing saga of a super powered killer called uh, Tommy Monahan and his human bodies and as they echo out living in the margins of the DC universe uh, fighting gangsters, fighting hired killers, fighting Nazi demons from hell and what makes it for me the perfect ongoing series, the perfect run as it were, is it manages to To combine both one of more comedic adventures. Uh, dinosaurs attack Gotham City. Uh, they have a zombie night at the aquarium. And on the other hand, adding like a long, more long-running character-based arc. Uh, there's a beautifully dark and painful uh, two-parter. In which Tommy, who's a long-time orphan, uh, gets to discover who his dad is. And they travel to Ireland to meet his father. And his father is a... bastard of a person and it ends in such dark character moment it's so well balanced it's so well balanced between the humorous parts between the action parts and between the drama parts and because Ennis and McRae are the only people who really cared about that character they created uh, Ennis written him I don't think McRae drawn his first appearance he was in a spin-off of a, the demon or something Uh, because they're the only one that care about it, they were allowed to bring it to a close. So when the series ends, it ends. Like, close the book, and nobody, like, nobody dared to touch that character without any saying yes. And he never said yes, and probably never will, unless it's him. Hold up. Didn't he do that uh, Section 8 All-Stars thing? Uh, that's not Tommy Moonahan. That's like side characters. It's a spin-off from a spin-off. But he also came back for the uh, two-parter with a JLA with, crossover. With a JLA, yeah. And by the way, Ennis, for a guy who hates superheroes, uh, wrote the single... <laughs> <laughs> he wrote the single best Superman story of all time, and I will die on that hill. Hitman number... Is it 37 or 34? is Tommy meeting up with Superman and they're just talking like he's chilling on the roof and Superman is just standing there and they're talking about what it means to be Superman, what it means to be an American immigrant because one is like technically Irish American and one is Kryptonian American. And it's such a beautiful like slow burn examination of what it means to be Superman And for me, it's even better than All-Star Superman. And I know it's heresy in a lot of uh, comic fan circles, but I, I will die on that hill. And McCray, McCray Pencils just kills it. Again, he can do comedy, he can do action, he can do exaggeration, he can do just straight drawing. He's like a perfect storyteller. Uh, have any of you read it? Because I know Sean is not of the Ennis fan side. I'm not. But I will say that I tried. I did try to read Hitman, but my problem with Ennis, I think, will always be that I'm kind of over the whole tone and the voice that he uses when he writes as this, like, sarcastic, cynical, you know, dirty bastards, whatever. Kind of like a slightly, but only slightly, more genial Warren Ellis. And that was fine for a while. Like, I'm not discounting that. You know, there was a place for that, especially around the early 2000s. You know, people were needing to hear, like, a voice that was not sugar and, like, happiness and the Joker throwing giant cream pies at people. I get that. I really do. But the first time that I tried to read Hitman was last year. And I was just, you know, constantly, I needed a Dramamine because I kept rolling my eyes. I'm like, oh, God. 
he has that particular voice that irritates me. And it might just be an affectation. It might just be, you know, that's how the guy writes and it's not for me. So I accept that. So here's me on Annas. I mean, I, I love Annas. Annas is in my, you know, top 10 writers. But everybody has, if you put Ennis's works on a spectrum from, say, Dick's on the silly end to maybe Punisher Max on the other or War Stories on the other, everybody kind of has their perfect Ennis. So, I mean, I would say, like, obviously, Hitman is closer to Dick's. It's kind of more in the middle, but it's definitely on the, the sillier I think the reason I like it is because it can zigzag. Like, one arc can be dicks, and one arc can be, like, uh, war stories, uh, condors. Like, just, you know, a brutal, real-life story of pain. And uh, there's this great scene uh, where Tommy uh, and his friends go and become mercenaries in Africa pretty much for kicks. And they sit around with the local warlord and they say, you know, you sell drugs to make money and your drugs come to America and they kill off children. And the guy just like looks at them stone dead and I'm from Africa. Please don't talk to me about that children. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's like, that's a line that I couldn't believe they let him perform in like 1998. Like, just look at the white guy, like stop whites playing to me, asshole. Yeah. No, I think, I think you're right about that. I mean, I, I think that it's the, it's the more dick stuff that kind of kind of gets in the way. I mean, I'm more of a kind of on the Punisher Max. I mean, definitely war stories. Preacher kind of zigzags too, but I feel like it's a little more on the serious side than 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 Hitman. But yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I, I like it. I, I read it when it was coming out. Okay, I uh, I think uh, you're number three, Julian. Okay, so uh, I'm going to to completely hijack the podcast because uh, that's the kind of good guest I am. So I have a number three, and then I have a little bit of a digression. Number three for me is The Sandman. It's a conventional choice, but uh, I think every time I go back to The Sandman I uh, by Neil Gaiman, I, um, I see things that I don't like. Uh, I definitely feel as if, you know, the overall arc of the series could have been tighter, and I, and I feel as if they're just panels where I, I think... God, this was overwritten. There are too many balloons in this panel. And I think especially as a creator myself, I, I, I see these kind of flaws. and But I see them because I grew up with it. And I think more than anything else, Sandman is not only the best representative of the kind of long-form Vertigo series, but also brought a literary intelligence to mainstream comics that can't be taken away. With that in mind, I have a, a sub-list that I'll just run through real fast, which are the best adaptations into comics, which nobody pays enough attention to. Number one for that is City of Glass, the Paul Auster novel uh, with uh, David Mazzuccelli uh, illustrations. The Forever War, the Haldeman novel, uh, adapted originally into Dutch uh, in 88, but I'm a huge fan of the novel. The Fritz Lang movie. Just, it's just been published in English, by the way. Uh, via yeah. Titan Press. I, I think actually this is like the second or third time that it's, in, I think this time it's Titan that is doing it. Yeah. Yeah. It's Titan. And then, uh, Eclipse's, uh, adaptation of M by John J. Muth, the Fritz Lang film. Uh, here we have an adaptation from a movie into a comic, which is pretty great. Uh, Shiraz Day, Tales of the Arabian Nights by Sergio Tapi. 
And then why I uh, derailed it is my fifth entry on that list is uh, Sandman Dream Hunters, because it's an adaptation yes. of an illustrated novel. But uh, P. Greg Russell adapted lots of stuff uh, into comics, uh, including like the whole Ring Cycle and uh, Oscar Wilde stuff. So he deserves a kind of mention there. Literary stuff. Well, obviously, my counter to your list of adaptation is that the best adaptation is Transformers vs. G.I. Joe, the movie adaptation, which is a comic adaptation of a, of a movie that never happened, written by the guy who's written the comic and drawn by him as well. I like that, That's actually. My counter. <laughs> it was super great. Almost made my list, but I, I talked about it so much over the last year that I decided to spare our listeners once again. I would have reached through the Skype line and strangled you with it. <laughs> uh, regarding Sandman, uh, my thing with Sandman throughout the years is this. I love, love, love most of the short stories in which all of the... What do you call the six immortal guys? The Endless. The Endless. Yeah. I like all the short stories where they're just on the margins. I like Hobgelding. I like the two uh, Shakespeare uh, appearances. I love Emperor Norton. is amazing. Astonishing. Uh, Dream of a Thousand Cats. Uh, Ramadan. All great. But whenever it focuses on the family itself, and particularly on Dream, you know, like, oh, God, I'm so tired. Like, Dream is right. You made me tired, man. And by the time I reached the kindly ones, I was like, oh, my God, you could have cut this story in half. You should have cut that story in half. Possibly you should have cut Neil Gaiman in half. I don't know. Stop talking so much. Like, I'm exaggerating, but I'm, I really would have preferred it if it was just like a collection of stories. I think Neil Gaiman's strength is actually in writing short pieces rather than long ones. I prefer his short story to his novels, for example. Most of the time, at least. I agree. I mean, I, I, I'm with you on the kindly ones, but you also get Lucifer as a, as a lounge singer, which, you know, just, is brilliant. Yeah, although the, I I like uh, the sort of female stories too. I mean, like uh, a game of you. Yeah, I, I find very touching, even though it's a longer story. But uh, my counter to what you're saying is probably my favorite my favorite story in there is Season of Miss, which is kind of you know a, a, in some ways a sort of non-linear narrative, but. Um, you know, opens with the great conclave of the endless and whatnot. And, uh, you know, has all these weird pages where, you know, you've just got like an illustration by Dringenberg with, you know, some writing by Gaiman of sort of, you know, death stares at you oddly and has many eyes and, and this sort of thing. So, I mean, I, I think that's my favorite arc, even though I would agree with you that the short stories are better than the longer stuff. Yeah. And I think it's worth pointing out also that. The saving grace of Dream being so annoying in that he is sort of like this precedent to the whole emo stereotype. But I think the benefit there is Gaiman knew to always pair him up with characters who could make him sympathetic. So, for example, you know, one of the most powerful, in my opinion, stories there is where they go, uh, he and Delirium are going on this road trip to find their brother. It brings back the whole uh, storyline with Orpheus and how that ends. And you actually do feel this enormous well of sympathy for a person who is just an abstract concept made flesh. And who, if he had been the protagonist of the story, 
then I think it, he would have been insufferable. But Dream is just, you know, he's usually just the facilitator. Doll's House and Season of Mist and A Game of You, they're all about the people who he affects rather than, like, this is his story. Yeah, it's the old spirit thing of, you know, Will Eisner telling the stories where, you know, like, the spirit is kind of running through the background and, and, and shows up at the end. And I always like those stories the best. Yeah. And the kindly ones, I think I, the only credit that I would give the kindly ones is I enjoy it tremendously, but I think the thing that it does really well is that it's a masterclass in tying all those loose ends back together because you really do get at the end of that story, you know, everything comes back at the end. Rose and Desire's plan and like all of the things that you've been seeing throughout these supposedly self-contained stories end up being part of the finale. I love that. Sean, your choice. I'm going to do a sci-fi webcomic this time, and I want to talk about Space Trawler by Christopher Baldwin. And this was actually kind of a hard pick because it was this or Narbonic, and I ended up giving it to Christopher Baldwin because it's very rare for me to see a writer who commits to having a really dark sense of humor in the more fantastic uh, genres that's not like dark fantasy and, you know, the drow in Dungeons and Dragons who all get off on BDSM and torturing each other. This is just a story about a bunch of people who are hijacked by an alien crew of idiots. They really are just morons, well-intentioned morons, but morons, in order to get involved in like interstellar politics and protect Earth from exploitation. And it just goes completely out of control, as you would expect with like, you know, humans thrown into the middle of nowhere. But the thing that Baldwin commits to and that I have so much respect for, and, and it pops up again and again in, in his other webcomics, is his dedication to if the story needs to have a tragic or sad ending, he's not going to pull his punch for the sake of reader satisfaction, which I think is more commendable in a webcomic that survives on its fans more so than the big two, right? Marvel can afford to piss anybody off and do quite frequently, and they don't really care. If a webcomic takes a wrong turn, your readership can dry up. In spite of that, he knows how to really... You know, if a character is heading towards a really bad end, there is not going to be some last-minute save, despite the science fiction setting and the nanobots and planets getting set on fire and just in total insanity. And I really appreciated that. It's not faux darkness in the way that a lot of cynical writers try to use it as just a cheap way to get people to be like, oh my god, that's so dark. Like, kind of like Game of Thrones where they very often go a little too far just to get a reaction out of people. With him, like, when something goes really bad with these characters, you feel it. And I appreciate that. I remember I've read the first big chunk of Space Roller but on your recommendation, and the story is good and the characters are good. The thing that would stop me from putting it anywhere in my top, you know, something or other is that the art is very dry. Like, it, it tells the story well enough, and it presents the characters well enough, but there is nothing there is nothing beyond it. And something like Order of the Stick does take 
a simple style and takes it to the next point. Yeah, and... but I think that's that's part of the theme because Burlew does go for the big cinematic scenes, right? The city under siege, the giant monster, all of these things. And Space Trawler deliberately avoids that. Like when you have a planet being incinerated by telekinetic slaves who have been liberated by well-meaning but very stupid freedom fighters... It's just, you know, there's a planet, there's a planet on fire. That's it. There's no, like, artistic grandiosity to it. But I think that's part of the, like, it's intentional. Okay. Uh, my number three, then? Okay. Uh, we're back to Britain. We're back to Alan Moore, specifically. And I'm gonna choose From Hell uh, with Alan Moore and Eddie Campbell, which is a 12, well, 14 ish issue series that ran between 1989 and 1998 it took them quite a long time to finish and i assume everybody knows all our listeners at least if nothing else from that terrible uh, johnny depp movie uh it's about the chase for jack the ripper only in this version there is no mystery we know who jack the ripper from the get-go and it's less how he does it and who he is and it's more why he does it and for me, this is the best thing that Moore ever did. With apologies to Watchmen and Before Vendetta and the Saga of Swamp Thing and many other uh, great things. Because it's the one thing of his uh, that I can think of right now it is not in a way a response for a book or a comic or a TV show. It's not like oh, look at me reimagining these characters, these pulp characters or whatever in a different manner. This is him talking about the real world. And one of the things that I really, really loved about it, uh, as he said, that for all that he uses, puts Jack the Ripper in the center, it's not his story. And it's not about mythifying him as this supernatural creature. No, he's just eventually turns out to be a foolish old man with the delusions of grandeur. And it's about the women. It's about the sex workers that he butchers and kills. And it's about how society as a whole failed him. How society is the crime that killed him. And for me, that's a very like strong humanistic statement that is the sort of thing that should have been said in every Jack the Ripper story, but it never is because people only care about the Ripper. They never care about the victims. Or if they do, they sensationalize it. Yeah, I, I agree with everything you've said. Although, you know, that's a, that's a lot of what I, I love about From Hell. Um, although I would say that what kind of distances me from, from Hell is the sort of paranoid stuff behind it. Um, the idea of sort of, you know, Freemasonic kind of conspiracies and I dig the idea of, like, uh, Whitechapel laid out in some sort of uh, secret code. All that stuff is cool, but you get the sense that the mentality behind the the piece, not necessarily, I mean, obviously of Alan Moore, but the piece seems to buy into that stuff a, a little too much, and, and that kind of pushes me away from it, but I agree with everything you said. I, I, I think the... You know, obviously the hallucinations of Jack the Ripper, you know, the sort of like giving birth to the 20th century stuff, uh, that stuff, uh, stays with me a lot. 
it's a very smart work. And yeah, Alan Moore is a very smart person. And I remember finishing issue five, which is the f- famous one where they take the carriage ride throughout real like Victorian London and they mark all the places on the map. And it ends with him showing the carriage driver the map. And it's, oh my God, like they, they see the map of London and how all of those particular churches create satanic like pentagram. And like, oh my God. And he actually, you know, Alan Moore and Eddie Campbell studied it. But the cleverness is the kind of thing that often in hinders Alan Moore's work because it becomes so much about showing off how much I am Alan Moore and I know more than you about the world, which I believe you, Alan Moore. You're a smarter man than I am. Fine. Uh, what I think makes From Hell work so well is that it's always remained something that is in service for his first purpose, which is the study of Victorian society and how that society uh, failed certain populations and individuals and how that society led to us, like how their violence became our violence and how killing women, like murdering women. This is a series about disbelieving women, right? It's about how people in power can just do what they want and as long as they do it to a woman on the bottom rung society, nobody will care. Which is, like, it's still true. It's still horribly true. Yeah, it's a point very well made. Ooh, it's a fun list. My list is full of murder <laughs> and fascism and lots of democracy. It's uh, all the fun stuff. Julian, save us. Uh, Lone Wolf and Cub. Yes! Mm. Oh, Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Knew I could count on you. So long, and yet... My God, I mean, we we were talking earlier about stories that feature secondary characters. I mean, so many of the stories that stay with me most of Lone Wolf and Cub are just a, a woman they encounter uh, who you're never going to see again. And it's really the story of her life and this kind of brief intersection with uh, the main characters. Visually, it's stunning. I mean, if you're going to talk about sort of decompression in comics... You know, I mean, not only does no one kind of do it better than Lone Wolf and Cub, but really Frank Miller was inspired by Lone Wolf and Cub to kind of bring that into Ronin and bring that into uh, Dark Knight and then Sin City. And uh, that kind of filtered into the mainstream. So Lone Wolf and Cub. Uh, I've, Definitely. I've read it all. Yes, it's an, it's one of the few manga series I started and finished. And it's an amazing work. In many ways, it's super ridiculously macho because it starts off with this one guy who's like, he's a pretty tough swordsman and it's ends with him, uh, I think in like book 15 because I have the old Dark Horse uh, small, in like small press uh, type stuff. In book 15 or something, they, they, you know, they bring back one of his old protégés to fight him and the guy comes in with like 200 men army behind him and he says, I'm going to take you with those 200 men. I think it's a fair fight. And and, he, and the lone wolf says, "Yeah, I think it's I'm, I it's a fair fight. Yeah, I guess you're right." And he kills the two hundred people and the guy. So in many ways, it's super ridiculous, and he takes himself super seriously. But a, it's fun. B, it's performed audaciously well. And like you said, decompression. The whole last book, which is like one hundred fifty pages or so, is just one fight scene. It's just two old dudes stabbing at each other. And uh, it's such, like, as amazing, powerful, don't give a damn about everything, I will do what I want work. And I think it manages also to avoid 
sort of the I, I'm so glad Julian that you brought up Frank Miller because I think the amazing thing about Lone Wolf and Cub comparatively speaking right as this sort of precedent to everything that came afterwards is that it never really sinks into its own pretentiousness the way that Frank Miller ended up doing like at some point you realize you get to the end and it's like yes it's decompressed and it's slow and it can sometimes reach these very theatrical uh, situations, but you never really feel like any second now they're going to start pontificating about the place of woman or something, right? Like that's not really the thing here where, you know, the, the people who were inspired by Lone Wolf and Cub, I think tended to miss a lot of the lessons that it taught, like Ronan being the most obvious example of a book that tries to appropriate a lot of that imagery and a lot of that iconography and a lot of the themes of that work and yet you have all of this nonsense too that you know the typical millerisms and no one has ever really i think managed to to really figure out what the strengths of lone wolf and cub are and what should be emulated and what you know like where the where the line is at the point where you cross it and you start being insufferable because you know, I could not read 15 books of Brian Michael Bendis decompression. Like there's, a, it's a different kind of decompression. Like with Bendis, decompression means repetition. And do I lose patience with that at some point? So, you know, there's a right way to do that kind of stretching out of long moments. And it's not enough people have learned that lesson correctly, I think, from long. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, what becomes it comes from Japan and they have like a different ideas of pacing and I don't I'm not sure how it was serialized originally like maybe in the original the pacing is terrible but when you read it like us in the west doing like large chunks in big books it just works tremendously well there's this one amazing scene that will walk with me to eternity where the father and son have been separated and he finds himself the father in like a village with starving peasants and they need somebody to defend them from the local lord. And he says, well, I'm a mercenary. Uh, my payment is uh, 200 Ryu per job, like the local coin. And they say they, can, they can't afford it, like they're poor peasants. The only thing they can give him is rice. And he looks at the bowl of rice and he says, you know, this rice was taken by the blood work of many men, so I will eat it. One bite, one coin. And they spend like two pages on him eating rice and the people like look at him in awe like he's Jesus reborn or something. And it's such, and he can allow himself to do that. Like, like spread that moment around of some guy eating rice. And like I said, if Bendis would do it, it would drive me crazy. I would slap him mostly because the guy would crack some terrible joke or something. But here it's like serious, 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 serious. Yeah. There's gotta be someone in Japan who's, uh, Super into, uh, American superhero comics who's like, yeah, Lone Wolf and Cub is okay, but you gotta read Bendis. Ugh. I, I assume, I assume there is. Like, One Punch Man exists because there are superhero fans in Japan. Well, One Punch Man, My Hero Academia, it's definitely a thing, but I think to go on like a very, very short tangent, I recently finished the second season of My Hero Academia, and the thing that I took away from that is that Japan apparently understands the superhero genre and what it's supposed to be doing more than anybody who's actually doing it in the West right now. That's what I got from that. Uh, Sean, your pick. So 
I have been compiling this list of like science fiction, fantasy, video games, because that's my jam. That's how I roll. There's one exception, though. I strongly, strongly, strongly recommend The Less Than Epic Adventures of TJ and Amal by E.K. Weaver. It's not an adventure. There's no magic. There are no spaceships. There's it no is lasers. less than epic, so the title is right. It, well, that depends on what, what your metric for epic, I think, because what drew me to this story initially was the suggestion that, you know, to sort of put on my scholar hat for a second, because I have been looking at webcomics as a sort of reaction to what goes on in the mainstream. And it was my observation at the time that a lot of stories that you find in the best webcomics are the ones that you know no publisher at the time would have agreed to print for all kinds of different reasons. Today, it's different because we have, you know, Image, Boom, Black Mask. These are publishers who are willing to take chances on emotionally authentic material, on esoteric stories, on things that are like not just the, the tripe of it all, you know? I, I believe TJ Inamal is in print right now through Iron Circus, I think. I'm going to have to quote Mariah Carey on that. I don't know her. But if you say so, I believe you. And again, like, it's not one of those webcomics that has like animated pages. So it, the transition to print is easy. And I hope EK Weaver makes all the money because what this is essentially is a story about, in the simplest terms possible, two people who have never met connecting on a very long road trip through Literally the middle of nowhere from Courage the Cowardly Dog. There are no other characters. It's just the two of them driving and driving and driving until they reach their destination where other people exist and how they connect with each other and how they, you know, gradually start to figure out the other person's deal and this romance develops between them and you don't really understand why it's happening and then it just sort of goes with the flow. It's this really, really authentic and emotionally resonant story which i found myself just like reading compulsively just because it's so this is such a cliche thing to say but the authenticity of it all they feel like real people they this feels like a situation that does not require suspension of disbelief does not require that you accept genre tropes just as being the way it is in order to get your foot in the door It's just two people in a car driving from Berkeley to, what was it? Portland? Not Portland. I forget. Providence. That was it. And once they start connecting, you're like, okay, but then the journey is going to end at some point and what's going to happen then? And Weaver just really, it's exactly 500 pages long and meticulously planned, really like panel to panel, page to page. This was a project that, unlike, you know, Order of the Stick, started, had a middle, has an ending, and that is it. And I just really appreciated it. Yeah, I, I, it's one of those on my to-read list, uh, which is an unfortunately long list, so it'll be there eventually. And I just checked and to make sure, and yes, it is published in print right now via Iron Circus, who do publish a lot of those emotionally resonant Uh, non-mainstream stuff that in years past you just see in print. So, good on them. This podcast is just more weight on the shelf. That, that's what we should have called it. Uh, my pick, my number two, as it were, is King City. Brendan Graham's King City, a uh, 12-issue series that ran from 2008 to 2010, at least the image version. It was originally 
started via Tokyo Pop and then they collapsed and then nobody cared. So the story is this, in case you don't know, there's this guy and he has a cat and the cat can do every single thing that you want him to do given the right stimuli. It's basically a Green Lantern ring, only it's a cat, so it's better than a Green Lantern ring. Uh, and this guy goes back to his old hometown and he meets an old friend and he meets an ex and the ex's current beau and some ninjas, some owl ninjas and some cat people and an alien princess. And also the end of the world is probably just right around the corner, but he's too busy like trying to find the perfect sandwich to care about it. First thing first, this is the best looking comic I've ever read, like... Just opening it, not knowing who this Brandon Graham is, and I fell in love. Like, for my money, if you ask me who's the number one artist working today, Brandon Graham. Like, no doubt about it. Uh, there's so much personality to his work. Like, you can see the influence. You can see Mobius here, and you can see, like, classic manga there. But everything is his own. And I think the most important thing to me, which is expressed in this comic more than any other thing he's ever done, is that he loves world building, not in the sense of, oh, like I fought long and hard, how the social economic situation brought onto this strange alien zombie ninja infested city or whatever. No, he likes world building in the sense of, I like those characters that I've created to interact with each other in a world that feels like real to them so he will spend pages on people just walking uh you know through the streets and you can see the graffiti and somebody will sit down in the bathroom and will leaf through old magazines that he found there and someone else will just lie on the bed with her boyfriend and they'll just they'll just talk and they'll roll around and you can see the inside of the room and everything feels connected to one another everything feels expressive and the end of the series, like, it builds to, like, a super end of the world is coming climax. And then it just says, now nah, we don't we don't really care about this. We care about the characters more than we care about the punch-ups. So we're just going to skip that. And what will be, will be. It's such an amazing anti-climax. Very characteristic of Brendan Graham. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's it's the one thing that I own in more than one edition, like... I have the trade. I have most of the single issues. I'm still hunting down for the elusive last one in a price that is not over $100 on eBay. And I even have like a mini uh, trade Spanish edition, which I just bought it because it looks cool. It came with its own box. And it's just something that I love to go back to over and over again and just admire the craft of it and the love of it. Yeah. Admittedly, I haven't read it yet, but it's on the backlog. I will get to it eventually. I'm in the same boat. Have you read anything by uh, Brendan Graham? No, I don't think so. I mean, I, I've seen articles about him and whatnot, but that's about it. Yeah, he spent the last several years in an editorial role, like running Island and leading the whole creative team and Prophet. And there were some fine works there, but I'm like, no, 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 dudes, sit beyond the drawing table, like, draw me something, <laughs> like, draw something cool. Because he's a, he like he's a slow artist, and when you can, and when you see the results, you're saying, "Oh yeah, it's perfectly fine that he's slow." But like, dude, I need more than one issue per year. You're killing me here. Is he working on anything now? Uh he's doing 
the last part of Multiply Warheads, he said. And then he's got and then next year is gonna be like a whole new series. Whatever that may be. And I think mostly he's working on pissing people off online. Like he's a unfortunately oh. sometimes very competitive guy, yeah. And sometimes he pisses off the right people, and sometimes he pisses off people that I really like and adore, and I'm like, oh, Oh, Mr. Graham, no, please don't. <laughs> don't don't be dead, dude. Don't be uh, Brandon McCarthy. <laughs> no, no. Don't uh, Well, he pissed off Brandon McCarthy, so that's one of his good pissing off people. <laughs> but yeah, like I said, uh, just just for the art, like even uh, I've read it in four in languages that I don't understand simply to get a new perspective on it because it's just such an amazing beautiful work. Our last round, right? Yeah. Yep. Uh, well, I, uh, have selected, uh, Will Eisner's The Dreamer. I struggle with, you know, everyone loves Will Eisner. Uh, you know, even if you can find fault here and there, there's no escaping that he built so much of the, especially the sheer storytelling, the page as a, working as a single panel, uh, the kind of meta panel thing. So often I think of, you know, his admittedly sometimes exaggerated expressions, but they'll communicate the story in such an evocative, wonderful way that really pulls you in. But this thing I struggle with is sort of like, okay, what graphic novel do I like the best? And I think that, um, I think a family matter is maybe closer to my heart, but, uh, the dreamer is focused on his time kind of pre starting the spirit. Uh, so it gets into the, you know, the early comics industry, the sort of rough and tumble, uh, bullpen kind of environment. And also sort of being a young man and trying to, you know, figure out, uh, how you want to use your creative energy, uh, and navigate a kind of corporate world. So that's my pick. Well, first thing first, thank you, Julian, for picking something quite old. So we don't look like, you know, youngsters who don't know our history in this podcast. <laughs> I mean, Eisner had to turn up. If we're talking like top comics of all time, someone was going to bring him up. And Julian, I'm glad it was you. Well, I, I kept, uh, I got li- Little Nemo did not make the cut, but uh, Eisner made it. So that's fair. I'm going to break the mold a little bit. And the last webcomic that I'm going to talk about is if you've ever had that feeling of, you're listening to a stand-up comedian or you're watching a comedy show and the particular brand of humor, the style and the cleverness hits you to the extent where you're like, that's me. It's like, it's made for me. So I'm going to talk about Cyanide and Happiness by Rob Van Blenker, uh, Chris Wilson and Dave McElfatrick. These are fake names for sure, but that's, it is what it is. And again, you know, going back to very simplistic artwork, yes, but Cyanide and Happiness has, it's a gag a day strip, meaning that it, you know, no storylines, no characters, it's just jokes. And they're really, really, to me at least, they're incredibly funny. <laughs> I, I just, it will be a four panel gag where just like off the top of Google search, right? A guy goes up to another guy and says, you know, do you want to play uh, Screw, Mary Kill? 
And he's like, yes, sure. The next panel, the guy is in a wedding dress, pulls out a gun, the other guy pulls out a dildo. You know, sometimes it goes into shock humor, sometimes it goes into, like, gross-out humor, but these... Writers are, I don't know, like, I don't have the words to explain how every time I pick up a trade or, you know, if you're feeling down and you just need that thing to give you a smile at the start of the day, you go to Cyanide and Happiness and I just laugh every time. It's the one in like a whole array, because there are plenty of comedy webcomics out there. Some of them are funny. Some of them have sort of lost their shine. I used to be really into Something Positive by uh, Randy Milholland, but it sort of uh, lost itself along the way. These guys are still funny. Yeah, explaining their humor, <laughs> like, is impossible. It's, to, to like, to paraphrase Frank Zappa, talking about cyanide and happiness is like dancing on architecture. Um <laughs> Because a lot of it is sight gags, right? And a lot of it is this really clever juxtaposition of puns and then sort of the visual punch in the face at the very end. But the easiest thing then as, you know, as a critic, as someone who's recommending this is if you want to know if this is for you, any page on that website will tell you if Cyanide and Happiness is for you. And if you're like me where you hear about it and you, you know, you go to a random page and you laugh, and then you turn the page, and you laugh, and then you turn the page again, and you laugh, and you just start going through the archives, then that's it. They have me as a fan for as long as they can make me laugh. And that's it. It doesn't have an arc. It doesn't have a storyline. It doesn't have, like, you know, any particularly meaningful uh, statements to make on the medium of webcomics or the genre. It is just a consistently funny Dan Harmon, but without the asshole aspect which I appreciate because sometimes Dan Harmon can be a little too much for me. I'm like, yeah, okay, I get it. Do you have it in a different color maybe? Um, <laughs> and they sort of, they don't go that far, which I appreciate. I have trouble getting into most web comics. I mean, uh, I, I was trying to think if I had looked at this and, and uh, you know, I'd say like maybe twice a year I go through, I'll go through recommendations or, you know, I'll find lists of people's favorite web comics. And the ones that always stick with me and the ones that I, I stay with end up being the ones that are the most traditional. They, they tend to be formatted, uh, more vertically. Um, even, I mean, I, I, you know, maybe, maybe, and my list reflects this. I mean, maybe I'm just, uh, more of a traditionalist or, you know, I'm not, uh, enough of a hip kid. Like you, Sean. <laughs> well, I will say that one thing that might help, I don't know, like in, in terms of reading habits, in terms of like comfort and how people approach these things. A lot of these web comics, the successful ones at least, are being printed as books eventually. Most of them at least. And some, in fact, that had that whole infinite canvas thing that Scott McCloud would love, they sort of change it so that it looks okay in a print book. A lot of those have come out. I mean, we all know about, you know, Nimona from Noel Stevenson and uh, uh, Giant Days is coming out in print now. John Allison has been doing webcomics for years. Bad Machinery started online and now it's in print. Yeah, Octopus Pie is coming out in print. Uh, so a lot of them are making that transition. And I do wonder if maybe the shift to the more traditional format can attract traditionalists or whether it is a problem with the content itself. I'd be really curious to hear about that. Like if you ever go into, you know, web comics that have made the jump into a print format and are now sitting on a shelf somewhere, 
So if you take it off the shelf and it looks just like any other comic, does it feel different to you when you read it in that way? I understand the tediousness of clicking your way through a narrative webcomic. Usually what I'll do is if I read the first chapter of a webcomic and I like it, I just go to the store and buy the PDFs. And I'll be like, I will have the book and that's fine, right? That's okay by me. A lot of the ones that make the jump to print, I, I do wonder if it attracts a different audience, if it's more, if it's perceived as more accessible. Because, you know, Giant Days wasn't a webcomic, but John Allison had been doing webcomics for years before he got that deal with Boom. Yeah, he still does, by the way. Yeah, it was Bobbins and then Scary Go Round. And then, in fact, I think... There's this whole fandom thing that I don't even want to get into that assumes that all of his works are taking place in the same universe. And they are. They are. It's not even a fandom thing. It's characters jump from strip to strip kind of thing. So I, so yeah, so I think Esther from Giant Days used to be a webcomic character. It's like there's a lot of mobility and a lot of like jumping over those media boundaries. And I've never been in a position to ask someone who who thinks of themselves as a traditionalist is like not really connecting to how you're supposed to read web comics. And then like, what happens when it reaches print? Well, that's a study. Well, would a comics scholar please contact Seekward at Seekward.org and, and yeah. like, offer them a book about it. Start writing it now. Well, before I pick my number one, which as I said in the beginning of the show is objectively the best comic ever made, obviously, I have a list, uh, a short list, like uh, Julian had, of five alt comics, which is works that would have been in my like top 20 or something, but I want to mention specifically because they're like small print type things that don't usually get a lot of attention. Okay, my five almost alt comics, uh, Operation Margarine by Kelly Skelly, which is a weird uh, two chicks uh, run away into the desert, chased by everyone uh, type hallucinogenic comics. Uh, Daughter of Her Father Eyes by the Talbots, uh, Mary M. and Brian Talbot, uh, about uh, Mary's, Mary's father, who was a Joyce scholar and intersected with the life of Joyce's daughter, which I think Julian would adore if he hasn't read it yet. It's a very literary comics about literature. Uh, Cindy and Biscuit by the Dan White, which is my favorite kids comic ever. Sorry, Bone. It's about a girl and her dog and they go outside and there are monsters and they punch them and kick them with a stick. The Rabbit by Rachel Smith, which is a great short graphic novel about two girls uh, walking into a forest and meeting a rabbit and it's not Alice in Wonderland like in many, many terrible ways. And it's a work that looks very, very fun and light from the style, and then it gets really dark. And finally, uh, a short novella that just came to my attention last year, uh, A City Inside by Tilly Walden, who's only 22, and she's on her fifth graphic novel right now. And I think, <laughs> and they're talking about Eisner nomination. She already won like a couple of awards in Britain, even though she's from Texas. And it's one of those people who's so immediately talented that I kind of like, you're too young to be this good. I hate you. And it's a brief like tone poem about uh, her falling in love. Well, a representation of her falling in love with another woman and them like living their life in a series of small moments. So I highly recommend all of those. And shall I do my number one, as it were? 
Uh, Sean, you kind of spoil it. Uh, it's Giant Days. It's Giant Days by John Ellison with art by uh, Lisa Tryman, Max Serin, uh, Liz Fleming, and several others on the specials. And I, when, I, when I started this list, I said, I really want to put Giant Days there somewhere. Like, and, I, and, I, and I thought originally it's going to be like my fifth place or something because it's an ongoing and I said well maybe it'll, there will be a dive or something and it's too light and it's so fluffy and it makes my elitist brain be like no no I need something more literary here but uh, over the last several months I've been running a Twitter account aside from my own uh, called Random Giant Days which is me just posting completely random like one or two panels from Giant Days four or five times a day and when I was scanning those pages and like cutting them up and online I was every single page of this comics works as a unit of its own and if you cut up any three random panels from that page they also kind of work as a unit of their own and every issue it's impossible like nothing should be this good on every single level on the oh the panel is great oh the page the panel is in is great oh the issue is great oh also the whole series work as an emotional arc of those characters growing up even though it's like it's a comedy comic in which every single issue is like a mini story of its own it shouldn't work definitely not for three years now there are issue 30 Three should come out soon. So three years now they're doing this. And and it's it's the common wisdom, right? That once a series gets to a particular number, no nobody can jump in. Yes, because you already have too much plot. You have too much development, too many new characters. But with Giant Days, it's the one comic that I always say, you can jump in on every single issue and you will get it. And you will fall in love with those characters and you just wouldn't want to live them ever. It's it's so funny and it's so like it's so beautifully human. Like every single one of those main characters could have a series of her own and I I wouldn't mind it. Like if you want to do Giant Days featuring Esther, if you want to do Giant Days featuring Daisy, I I would buy those. Like I I would buy 20 Giant Days comics a month if they published if John Ellis wrote them. And and in those <laughs> like in this age where everything is dark and terrible and oppressing and it doesn't matter if you're opening uh the news sites or your facebook or your twitter is like oh what fresh horror shall reality will bring me today it's so nice that every month you get at least 20 pages of love like of a, of a comics that want to hug you and tell you no no no, it's okay have a biscuit darling Come spend time with these friends who uh, he just writes them as so energetic and it, always positive, always. Even someone like Esther, who in canon is always written as sort of this melodramatic drama queen, still has so much heart. You know, you, you can never feel like they're putting on airs or that they're being, they're just really genuine characters. You gotta love it. Julian, do you have anything to say about Giant Days? No, it's on it's on my it's on my to read list. But you know, I I like being reminded of what a terrible world we live in constantly, so that every time I read a comic, I want to shoot myself. 
And then I, then I put on the news and then I know the existential side of that dread. Ouch. No, you, I, I, I've got to check it out. It is sort of a, a nice break from things. I think that the comics that remind you about, you know, the crap that's going on in the world and like the really heavy stuff is always there. And I think is also, especially these days, like it's just ubiquitous. Something like Giant Days, I think, sticks out just by virtue of being one of the few that's like, yeah, we don't have to do that. And like I said, if it was just laughs or something, maybe I wouldn't put it so high. But because I feel those characters and what they go through, like Daisy spent the last few years of the comics in the slow coming out of the closet arc. And it's one of the most, like I said, humane presentation of a character just coming out and dealing it and learning learning how her friends deal with it and being so afraid to tell her family, her, her grandmother. Also, I just opened one of my random Giant Days panel and it's just Esther grouching at the reader saying the words a mortorium on yogurt. And it's funny. <laughs> I I don't even know like what's the context because it's random. It's like a randomizer and it's just Esther looking at you, her eyes like narrowing down like she's cleaned this wood and a moratorium on yogurt. No more yogurt. That's one the Maximoff's new curse. <laughs> uh Sean, you had your quick list. So five quick hits right off the bat, just stuff that I recommend. If you hear a name and you think that sounds good, go for it. It's all online. It's all for free. Nimona by, well, okay, except for that one. Nimona by Noel Stevenson is no longer online and no longer free, but still worth the read. Superhero fantasy science fiction world craziness. Uh, just a really good story. Narbonic by Shannon Garrity and, uh, madcaps, uh, mad scientist and her ever-suffering, ever-lovable assistant having these insane adventures that involve robot clones on the moon and just, like, complete insanity. Uh, also available online, Tales of Overside by Evan Dom. This is, so far, a trilogy of three series, one of which is, hasn't been finished yet, so I haven't read it. Uh, Rice Boy, The Order of Tales, and Vatu, which are just these really abstract and really weird and almost sort of expressionist interpretations of high fantasy, where in Rice Boy, for example, just like bizarre landscapes and the story doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but somehow the art carries you through. Uh, if you want to see where one of the current greats got her start, Demonology 101 by Faith Erin Hicks. By her own admission, it's a Buffy ripoff, but it's a pretty good one, so you can just sort of go with that. And finally, I had to double check just to be sure that this is still online because it is old as the hills. It's Nemesis, starting with an M, M-N-E, Nemesis, uh, by Sylvan Migdal about a woman who finds herself in a very atypical afterlife with a whole bunch of people who don't really belong there or some of them do and then there's this whole process of finding out exactly what this afterlife is and it's so much better than that one comic with the where the guy meets Hemingway whose name I forget but I think it was the life after John, that would be that yeah I didn't like that one Nemesis did it much better and those are my quick hits okay so uh listeners you've heard it here those are the best comics of all time 
it's an objectively true list because it's published <laughs> on Sequart. And you can put your academic stamp on that. You can cite that. Like if your professor asks you, oh, uh, can you tell me what are the greatest comics? You can cite Sequart at the smorgasbord. We know of what we speak. Uh, it's been great having you here, Julian. It's been really, really fun. Uh, before we finish this show, you want to plug something? Uh, well, I've got a Kickstarter up for one of my comics, uh, Lazarus, and, uh, I also want to, uh, plug, uh, your book, Tom, uh, about curing the postmodern blues on the filth, which didn't even get a mention. I don't know why. Um, I think I plugged enough throughout the show, and because it's my first and only book so far, I'm, as all first writers, I'm like, nah, I'm sort of embarrassed by it. Oh, you shouldn't be. You shouldn't be. It's a really good book. Absolutely. Uh, Sean. And I, I hate the filth, and I say it's a good <laughs> book. So you, you can trust that opinion. You Sean know, doesn't like I filth. Don't. Sean likes clean stuff. He likes the clean. <laughs> ah, Morrison. Overrated. But, um, yeah, Julian, it's been tremendous fun having you here. Uh, thank you so much for agreeing to put up with our insanity for the last three years. Uh, squabbling about Joe Quesada's latest scandal and why the hell does Mark Miller have to insist on rape scenes in every comic? And really, what, why does Tom King keep working for these idiots? But, <laughs> but, uh, you have given us a home on your fantastic website and I have had so much fun reading the other content on that site. There are these really amazing articles. Sequart is constantly putting out just these fantastic collections of essays uh, there was a star wars star wars project most recently and just books that i sadly can't afford yet but uh will eventually uh, get to read in some context and just i have always appreciated so much what you do and the extent to which you are promoting critical thinking especially these days it is so important with America going to hell in a Barbie dream car. Just to have, like, you know, pop culture be examined through scholarly, academic, critical perspectives to go deep rather than just scratch the surface. And I am tremendously appreciative of that. And I have you here now to thank you in person. So thanks. Well, that, that blows me away. I mean, you know, that's, um, so much of what, uh, you know, what, what I wanted to accomplish with my life is, uh, you know, to do exactly that. And I'm tremendously thankful for the two of you. I mean, you know, you, you can joke that it's all, uh, talking about Quisada and Mark Miller, but you, you have no idea how many times I've just been in my own head or depressed or, you know, just not following the news very much. And I'll listen to your podcast and be like, so and so did what? What's going on? And then I, I, I go on and, and research it. And the two of you have been a major, uh, Source for comics news for me, which uh, probably should scare the two of you. <laughs> well, I take some pride in that, but um, I'm just glad that we've had this journey, and I'm glad that it that we got to have it with Sequart. You know, because we could have just ended up on SoundCloud and and Stitcher like all the other podcasts, but you really did give us a place of, in my opinion, like respect and honor, and thank you for that. We've been honored. In fact, I was just talking to, uh, Mike the other day, uh, Mike Phillips, uh, the editor in chief. And, you know, we both, uh, you know, took a good 15 minutes to just, uh, talk about, uh, how much we've enjoyed this journey on our end. 
and how awesome it's been to be able to host the two of you. Well, we have one more episode to go. And yes. until we get to it, I'm Tom Shapira. I'm Sean Edry. And I'm Julian Darius. Till next time. Bon appétit.